podcast for late October. It's almost Halloween 2016. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Civilization VI. Oh, no. I was going to say that. My name is Chris Park, and my game of the week is not ah mm-hmm. um, Plague Inc., I guess. I was going to say Civ Six also. Wow. So we're on the same. Now, is it because you're playing it or because you're avoiding playing it? I'm avoiding playing it. I mean, I won't get anything done. It is a time thing, <laughs> yeah, Chris. I mean, if you, if you didn't have anything else to do, sure, jump into it. But uh, I know you're busy with stuff. Yeah, it's you've made the right decision. Also, Chris, yeah. uh, there, I feel like it needs a patch or two. Like, I feel like I kind of wish I, that I wasn't jumping I have, into it so early. I have read some things about the AI, and that kind of makes me tisk a little bit. And I'll be happy to wait. Uh Gives me gives me one more reason to wait a bit, which is which is good. Now, before we get into what you're so busy with, and one of the main reasons you can't uh, sink a bunch of time into Civ Six, I want to talk a bit about you, about Chris Park, not the guy who runs Arkin, uh, but Chris Park, the guy who decided to go into game development. Uh, you, this isn't your original job, right? Like you were doing something else when you started making video games. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I um. Uh, I was also doing nothing else when I started making video games <laughs> to some extent. Um, it, it went through my other career as well. Um, I mean, I was, uh, doing, uh, level design and, um, various things like that back in, uh, 1990, 1989, mm-hmm. I would say I'm 33. So I was like nine years old and, uh, demon stalkers was the game that almost nobody's ever heard of for the PC that, uh, I was playing it on the 386 and it was super fun. It had a level editor, which was like this, oh my gosh thing. And it's kind of a top down, um, honestly, kind of a roguelike vaguely i would say it's an adventure-ish sort of game anyway so i was making levels for that and then i did a whole bunch of other stuff through the 90s and mods and i was making little games in qbasic and then i was making like mario platformers and stuff in um the early 2000s you know so you um, always had it in you to tinker with games like it wasn't just playing yeah. them it was wanting to 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 make them and put together new bits and pieces like that was a priority for you when you were playing games Absolutely. Now tell Absolutely. me this, this demon stalker thing. How come I haven't heard of it? Like, is it just super obscure? I don't know. I got it for Easter. <laughs> it was given to you, um, okay? It, it was given to me. I mean, I was like nine, eight or nine. Um, I, I, you know, there were just a lot of obscure games back then. I'd have to look it up and see who made that. But um, uh, I mean, gosh, I mean, I could like sing you the theme song. I mean, I mean, wow, in, one of like, those. In, in, like. MIDI music, you know, I mean, not necessarily pre-MIDI music, it was like PC speaker music. Um, but it got into yeah. your head that that seriously that you still remember the theme song. I mean, I, I have so many hours with that. I had one three and a half inch floppy disk for the regular game, and then I had one for my one with levels, and it had 100 levels on it, and I did about 68 of them or something they were they were time consuming to do and like it supported the mouse you know that was pretty cool ah, sure um you know um that that was a uh, big thing because i i had grown up on earlier than that on uh the atari and some various other things i mean the, the regular nintendo i mean i was my dad um is an engineer and was into um 
you know, building computers, you know, from kits and stuff back into the 70s. Was even. he into so, games too? Like, is that where you got the interest in games or you just got that independent of your dad? Um, he was into games lesser, but I mean, he and a lot of the guys at like uh, Northern Telecom where he worked would kind of trade um, Atari games on uh, the five and a quarter uh Five and a quarter, was it? I'm drawing a blank now. Anyway, the, 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 the floppy old, disk, the big floppy disk. The old, disc, yeah. old floppy disk. Yeah, there's three ones, and yeah. a half and five and a quarter. Right, right. Yeah, five and a quarter. Yeah. And so he, he, they would trade them around like that. And some of them were extremely obscure, I think, because they were programmed by, like, you know, people that he knew or whatever. And so, um, you know, I know my wife's dad was doing that sort of thing you know, at Cisco and other places that he worked prior to that where some that he'd made and some that other people had made there and they just swapped those around. And of course I didn't know them until the, uh, two thousands, but, um, but at any rate, I mean, that was kind of a pre shareware culture, like shareware was a new thing later on. And so, you know, I grew up in that kind of environment where there was just tons of these little games that would come by and, um, you know, some of them you were kind of lucky if you got a few levels in. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just remember they, they tended to be hard. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I remember. I mean, this is this was a time when if you were into games, you would come to them. The games wouldn't necessarily come to you. So there, we didn't have what we have today, this whole idea of a new user experience and accessibility and, and AIs. I just remember beating my head so hard against certain games that were just so user hostile and difficult and really having no sense that it should be different. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, there were no like, uh, here's the controls. Um, nothing. I mean, in a lot of those, I mean, this is in the Atari era. And I mean, we had one of the Ataris with the, um, keyboard attachment. I don't think it was a 2600. I think it was a slightly upgraded version from that. And so some of them, uh, used various things on the keyboard instead of just the joystick and we had like the stylus we had all the fancy stuff oh yeah that is bleeding edge (laughs) yeah i mean we were like drawing and pixel art and stuff it was it was pretty slick um what were some uh what were uh some games that were super influential for you that people would know like if, if i was to try to triangulate you know what kind of games were formative for chris park what are some where i would know oh yeah that game because that demon stalker i don't know what that is <laughs> right uh well let's see you probably don't know seamus you don't know o'reilly's mind that ones you can't even like find online anymore hardly um let's see ones you would know um I was really into my first experience with uh, RTS games was actually Warcraft and then Warcraft 2 I saw and that was just like this amazing upgrade from the first one and um, I played the heck out of uh, Warcraft 2 over 28.8 modem with a friend across the street and so forth. We'd be, you know, we couldn't do it in the same houses one another they weren't laptops and so we'd be like we only had i only had the game (laughs) this is so bad but i mean we would actually uh you could launch the game with the expansion cd or with the regular cd so one of us would take one and one of us would take the other and before (laughs) we had the expansion we literally would boot up the game on one of our uh, machines and then walk the disc across the street and put it up on the other one and then call each other on on the phone you know to, to you know be the dial up and and then play that way because 
you know, it was like 30 bucks or something. We didn't have that kind of money. That's like, that's but, like a, a land party, but uh, at the block party scale, kind of. I know. <laughs> I know. And I mean, when I was, uh, you know, we played, uh, you know, later on from that, and we were playing like GoldenEye 007 and all the various other, I mean, we played Chrono Trigger and, uh, you know, we would take turns with i mean you know when donkey kong country came out it was like oh my god the graphics on that and um you know i a lot of the nes games were really influential on me i love some of the slightly weirder ones like maniac mansion um i know that was also on pc but i honestly really prefer the uh nes version just visually they did a really different job on that um I have On to say, Mac, I, I Loadrunner Legend Returns. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Like, I, I, you're, you're. This is a huge breadth of of types of games and genres. Like, and, and if I look at the games that you've made at Arkin and even published, uh, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that you have such a diverse background. I mean, it sounds like yeah. you, you kind of played. Uh, you, you just weren't one of those kids that was like into one or two genres. Uh, but. Uh, I, I also get the sense that like AI War is such a it, it's clearly from someone who knows RTSs. Like, yeah. uh, I, I feel like that uh, your trademark game from Arkin is clearly an RTS from a guy who likes RTSs and who wants to try something different with them. Uh, does your RTS experience go beyond like the Warcraft games? Oh yeah, I mean, I, I have I have more hours overall in other genres, but I probably don't have more hours in any one genre or subgenre than RTS, if that makes sense. A plurality of hours in, uh, right. in RTSs, sure, sure. Exactly. So, I mean, um, you know, I, I played uh, Warcraft, and mainly Warcraft 2, um, with other uh, friends. And, you know, my dad and so forth really didn't like the fantasy. He's sci-fi. He doesn't like the fantasy <laughs> themes and so forth. And, <clears throat> excuse me. And so we went to... Um, um, Age of Empires, and uh, I, I guess we were in Boston visiting my uncle, and um, I was, I guess, showing them Age of Empires, and we were like, "Check this thing out! This is like the new hotness," and it puts, you know, Warcraft two to shame. And Warcraft three came out, but I didn't like what they were doing with the heroes and whatnot. I didn't know the term micro at the time, but I felt like that's what that was, and I was like, ah, you know, that reminds me of all the little spells and stuff that you have to cast with like ogre mages, and I didn't like that. I liked, you know, commanding groups of units, not like messing with one dude and controlling abilities on him uh out of a crowd of dudes and so you know uh age of empires definitely went in that direction and so we 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 loved that we started playing that over land and um you know we had to uh in order to do that back then uh because of the way like port forwarding and stuff would work and the way that age of empires things happened we had cable by then we were one of the early time warner customers and um and so, you know, my dad was able to play on cable, but uh, I had like the old Pentium 75 and he had the newer like Pentium 150 or something. And uh, so then um, I would be on dial up through like, I, I don't even remember the, 
uh, Juno or something, Net Zero, I think was a thing, maybe. Um, and so, you know, using dial up to get on with that while he's in the same house on cable and my uncle's in Boston. And, you know, so we did that for a number of years and then finally we're able to get it, you know, worked out. I mean, if anybody thinks that it's like hard to port forward or use like Hamachi or something, I mean, we went through the ringer back then. I mean, this was like running, like there wasn't a phone outlet in my room to like run <laughs> like a, uh, was a cat or whatever, whatever you call those phone cables, it's not cat, uh, cat five, six. cat three, cat, yeah. it's cat, it's cat three, it's okay. cat three cables. Right. Yeah. That we would have to run, you know, and no phone calls for, you know, right. All that sort of thing. Yeah. So it, um, it, that was a, that was a different time. And so then, you know, we went from that and then age of empires two, I mean, that was huge. And we just played that to death. And, uh, then we went to empire earth after that really loved it. Empire Earth 2 came out. Mm-hmm. I felt like that took some steps backwards. And the it was I think it was done by some of the people who had done expansion packs for the first one. And I remember really not liking the space um, expansions in particular. I honestly don't remember if that was Empire Earth 1 or 2. But one of them had a space expansion. It was basically just ocean again, but colored black. And... It didn't. It didn't do well to me. I just. It didn't. It didn't work on so many levels. But um, you know, we tried playing Homeworld and absolutely hated it because you know I was into like first-person shooters and various other things, and I really like Descent. So you know, Six Degrees of Freedom. I have no problem with any of that. Mm-hmm. But but with Homeworld, I just felt like I could never see what all was going on, and I felt like everything was so slow. Like the ships took forever to get anywhere. It was driving me nuts. So. You know, we never even played Homeworld Two because we just we just couldn't stand it. And so, is the pacing did, and not the 3D? It wasn't the the 3D. It was both. Okay. It was both. Sins I, I feel of like Solar. There's, there's no a Z axis really has no business in most video games. Uh, I, I feel that, in most video. Oh, wow. sorry, sorry. Most RTSs. Love you. Let me there just, we go. Okay. Yeah, most okay, strategy yeah. games. Strategy games. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, like I don't understand I, I, why you don't just do space as a flat 2d plane just for, for the sake of usability uh you were about to say sins of a solar empire and i think that's a perfect example those guys just had a very clear sense you know we don't need a z-axis we're going to imagine space as kind of naval combat uh and that's my problem with homeworld i, I don't feel that z-axis adds anything to homeworld right um, and and i and i liked sins of a solar empire for that reason i disliked it for the pacing Again, mm-hmm. I, I know a lot of people like the pacing of it, but I just felt like it was sluggish compared to um, Empire Earth, Age of Empires, Rise of Nations. Um, it is definitely it, not a lunch hour game. And we didn't play stuff. I mean, we would usually play we would play against AIs that were set as cheaty as possible and that would outnumber us. We played basically PVE. And so... A lot of times, especially in Empire Earth, we had some of our best games where sometimes it would last um, 10 hours where uh, there would be these just epic stalemates that we would eventually just tip the scales and win. And uh, the ones that had some water but not too much water were really ideal for that because there'd be like nuclear bombers coming over across the ocean and like bombing the heck out of our like, you know, coastal tower defenses that would be fighting off their ships. And we'd be trying to, you know, there would be just 
impenetrable on the air front. So we'd be trying to figure out what we could do. And that was just, those were some of the most fun experiences that I had in RTS games. Mm -hmm. I think it was mostly Empire Earth 1, where we would just be hitting this, this stalemate that we've never felt like we didn't have something to do. It was not boring. And there was a consistent back and forth contestation of uh, territory. Um, but it was not, there was no overall progression. And then we would finally get a foothold or something, make a little beachhead. And um, if we could just wiggle in there enough, then eventually it would be, all over and that was super satisfying when we managed to do that and chris uh, i'm I'm hearing when you describe this i'm completely seeing the seeds of ai war being planted in a young chris park's mind <laughs> like, you like, bet. That, like that's exactly because one of the things i wanted to ask you about is when you played rts's was it a typical uh because rts's have to be many things it's a weird genre any given rts has to be a single player campaign uh it has to be a skirmish game against the ai and it has to be a tuned multiplayer game against an online community like those are three very different design uh requirements um and i realized that early on when i was making ai war and i was just like you know what f those other two modes mm -hmm. this is pve i'm focusing on that i can make a really i mean i don't play pvp much i mean we did some but and we actually had some really cool games where I got like stumped by elephants in uh, Age of Empires 2. And it was like this like brilliant strategy that the guy used against me. And I was like, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. And I can totally get why people like the PvP. We had so many other experiences where people would just, you know, fuss out and leave, do, you know, whatever else. It, it just, you know, they start getting down a little bit. They can tell they're behind you, and so they just quit. And it's like, dude, come on, like, try, you know? And it was frustrating because we wanted to play, like, three-on-three three or something. We'd play three-on-five we'll three if that's what you want to do. But, um, you know, we don't mind if we lose. It doesn't really matter. But, um, you know, but we wanted to play on the same team, and that was always hard to, you know, get together as well if, even with something like Age of Empires 2, so it's like, you know what? PV, PVE is all I'm going to do. Like, And this is from a guy who played a lot of Counter-Strike, played a lot of Day Defeat, mm -hmm. played a lot of Unreal Tournament, that sort of thing. I love PvP in those sort of games, uh, you know, but I just don't care. For, and I like playing competitive chess, you know, but I don't like playing um, RTS games in PvP for whatever reason. I mean, it becomes a click fest for right. one thing. But. Now, now what, what you've done with AI War, and let's let's segue a little bit into AI War 2, which you're working on now, uh, is it's not just... Because what you're describing, some I could see someone going from that to just making a tower defense game. Like, here I am right. in base, the, the AI is going to throw stuff at me, and I just have to prevail long enough, and then eventually I'll either push them back. And then it's over once I've held out, basically. Uh <laughs> AI War does uh, a very important thing in that the player has control over how much it's going to push back, over how competitive it's going to be. Like, it's not just a static entity throwing stuff out. It's got this whole separate set of rules that the player can kind of surf and govern and tweak and navigate. Um, there, there's a sense of it's a, it's, a, it's a breathing opponent that does different things that tower defense doesn't do. Uh I had played um, 
Pixel Junk Monsters uh-huh. um, really enthusiastically. <clears throat> My wife and I played that co-op on the PS3 um, not all that long before I was uh, designing AI War, and that was actually a big influence on my impressions of tower defense man it played various tower defense games and i used to do um both in um age of empires and warcraft 2 the equivalent of what became tower defense later and uh, i was a big towers guy you know i would be the the annoying rome guy that built a line of towers that led into your village and then you're not able to you know defeat it because each one is covering the next then my army comes and you're dead you know that you know i did a lot of weird stuff like that and had fun but um with you know those empire earth games where there was the big stalemate and so forth were one of the big um influencers there because key thing is that territory would change hands and we would actively lose territory and had the potential to lose and we would have to scramble to see what would happen if we did and that was important to me that the ai had to have enough bite to do that Mm -hmm. and um the fact that they would so frequently send their nukes from one place their nuclear bombers they would fly in a certain flight path and if we could get them early enough we could kill them and then uh that way we could start making inroads and their coastline would have so many potential inroad spots that we would have to kind of test them and see which ones had what weaknesses and where we thought we could get a foothold. And it wouldn't necessarily be completely obvious just from looking at the board um, where the best spot would be. I mean, you would think it would be here, but then it turns out, oh, no, they can bring these other guys from the side faster than we thought. And, hmm, well, what about over here? And, you know, oh, actually, the building's getting away over here. So what do you know, despite the fact that it's so populous, the nukes can't get us here and those guys can't get there fast enough. And so we have just enough time to land our transports, get past the wall, blah, 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 blah. You know, and so that sort of kind of puzzly nature of, both having to manage your offense and your defense and having a somewhat regularity to the things that are hitting you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was like, okay, well, let's let's make this a little more structured and take that idea of the tower defense. Um, but the, the thing that had really um, bummed me out with Pixel Junk Monsters was that um, two things. One was... We played all the way through it, and we just loved it. It was so relaxing, but at the same time, tense. And some of those levels were really hard uh, if you were trying to like do a perfect clear on them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we, my wife and I, we had so much fun with that. And then once it was done, we wanted more. And there was an expansion. We played that. And then we still wanted more. And there was just nothing left in it. Like, even... <sighs> Eight years later, like I don't have the feeling like I could go back to it and play it again because like I don't even remember all the levels and exactly how they work. That's not the that's not the problem. It's just I have this sense of being done with it. It just because I won that level and I know I did, and so it's just like remembering the secret handshake basically right, right, right. to do it again. And that bothers me. And they added in their expansion pack, a thing that gave like randomized, mm-hmm. uh, uh, waves. And I thought that that would be like a great thing. And I was so excited about that. And then it just never really gelled for me because they didn't have any coherence. There was this 
complete randomness to whether you won or lost a given wave. And um, there was no rhyme or reason to, you know, it just felt like just stuff was happening. It did not feel coherent and you couldn't plan for the future. There really wasn't any, you know, so much Pixel Junk Monsters requires foreknowledge of the next wave in general. There's a lot of memorization involved in that game. And I really didn't like that either. And so I was like, all right, well, I don't want memorization. I don't want you to have to have foreknowledge per se, but let's give the player foreknowledge. It's like, all right, we're going to tell them what's in the wave. We're going to give them five or ten minutes or whatever they want, and we'll let it be customizable. So you know what's coming. You know in general where. Um, and you've got a little while to prepare so that way it can throw something hard at you and you can actually have an interesting time dealing with it versus it being this thing that's too wimpy and you just, it just dies when it appears and there's no real point. And now you're uh, talking specifically about AI war though, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Those were, you know, those, those were design things. Yeah. Sorry. I, I really transitioned there, but those were design things that came, you know, directly from, like the pixel junk monsters experience. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also I, I think a big part of it too is, and you're, you've touched on this, uh, a strategic context for those yes. little tactical battles is it has to matter. It's not just you're protecting your base is 20 hit points. And right. if the waves are over and you still have at least one hit point, you're done next. Like there's a context for this. And I always felt that that was something that I really wanted in an RTS with the campaign mode. And campaign modes instead were just little scripted progressions, and that, that wasn't fun. I, I wanted some context where this battle mattered. It somehow connected to the battle before it, and it would have some influence on the battle after it. Uh, Did you play much of the Warcraft 2 campaign? Because there were, I think, four levels that they did. They were two sets of two mm-hmm. where your army from the level before carried over to the next scripted campaign thing. And this is like 1995, 1996, because it, it was base game in the first expansion. Uh-huh. And my jaw just dropped when I saw that back then. And I hadn't ever seen anything like that since. And I was like, that is... You know, you can really hose yourself into yeah, the next. Yeah. You might have to replay the, the previous mission. You might have to back right. up. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I and I really liked that, but I also didn't because I really liked that there were consequences, mm-hmm. but they took away like all my resource production facilities and everything. And they're like, all right, well now here's your army from before, but you don't get to keep the rest of the things you did or the territory you right. captured or anything. Chris, you, so should be, like, you should be so glad you didn't play Homeworld then because that was the whole angle for, uh, for Homeworld overall. Like your, 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 your fleet would go forward to the next mission and the next mission. And if you screwed up somewhere along the line and your fleet was underpowered, or you didn't have the resources to carry forward, it would just completely hose you. Uh, uh, man, I mean, we played we played the um, multiplayer. You know, we gave it a good twenty, thirty hours or something, but just never. I, I didn't play the single player. Campaign well, that, that's the thing is you, you, yeah, you would. It, that was only in single player. Like that was the yeah. structure of their single player is that whole idea of carrying your army forward, which right. that, that can be very cool, but it can also put you in a, in, a, in a dead end. Uh, right. And that, that's why in, in AI war that is. Uh, reactive, like the player has control over how much he wants to push, how much he wants to kick the hornet's nest, kind of as it were. Right. Like it's a, it's and, a variable and, control difficulty level in a way. Yes. And that's why I also wanted to um, put in giant 
maps with a ton of planets is because I wanted to have campaign mode like I'd experienced in Warcraft 2 there, but you keep your um, resources and at the same time have a constant ramping up. And originally, actually, I was putting in um, uh, resource spots that um, dried up rather what rather like what happened in, I think Empire Earth did it. I know Warcraft 2 did it. I cannot remember about the earlier Age of Empires ones. Um, it's, it's been a while. But uh, the um, that didn't really pan out, and so I abandoned that line of thinking. But uh, instead, it was just a matter of getting ever larger and larger fleets. And I had been a big fan of the really large unit caps in Supreme Commander, and Empire Earth was doing that as well. And... Um, you know, I was like, they've got a thousand. I bet I can do ten thousand. I was like, <laughs> and I well, I remember, and I remember thinking about it. Like, I may have to do squads, and I may have to do this and this and this to do it because I'd played some Company of Heroes. I didn't really care for it. I played a bit, but you know, I played some of the Dawn of War stuff, and then I didn't really care for. It. I mean, I played like basically every RTS that that came through, at least the demo uh, from the beginning of RTSs. I went back and played Dune 2 and all that and uh, up through 1998 or so. And then I've kind of fallen off the you know wagon a little bit since then. But, um, I mean, I was always scouring every RTS. And I would play the demos and stuff on my own and kind of evaluate them. And I'd write up pros and cons about them. And we would decide, you know, because it was whenever it was somebody's birthday or Christmas or whatever, mm-hmm. then that would be when we would switch RTSs. My dad's birthday is in May. And, um, so that made an, a natural point. Like when it was his birthday and we'd switch games, uh, or at least introduce another game to play alongside. And then Christmas comes and we do that again. It's like, do we have one that will last at least five or six months, you know, here? And, you know, so I'd have this long list of like what came out this year and what we'd missed in past years. And like, you know what, maybe this year we should just go back to rise of nations. That was really fun. And right. it's some really good stuff, you know? And so, it's like maybe maybe we've been away from that long enough that we can play that again. Some, I just know. recently did that for uh, for several weeks in a row. I went back to Rise of Nations, and boy, does that hold up. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. What uh, uh, was there any uh, games when you were developing AI War? Like when you sat down to do AI War, did you feel that you were drawing from other games, or did you feel like you were creating something from whole cloth? Um, I felt like I was. There were a lot of ideas that I'd had where I was like, you know what? This industry is too fragmented. Um, I, I was, I had this distinct feeling of frustration that had built up at that point, where um, every time we made the switch from one game to another, and it was usually because we had just overmastered the AI at that point, right. and no amount of PVE was possible anymore, um, and that was happening with increasing frequency to a really frustrating degree. I mean, six months couldn't hold it anymore, mm-hmm. and um, the. Uh, so um, I had this extreme frustration with the point that, okay, Supreme Commander has this amazing camera, and I love the like far zoom that it had and so forth. This should be in every strategy game from now on, you know, with my point of view. And, mm-hmm. you know, I really was enjoying Age of Empires 3 and, like, their uh, home cities and the way that you could customize your decks and all of that sort of thing. And I yeah, – it had some bad sides because I played French and I it would like right. overdo my economy. And then it was just like, 
just build musketeers and the whole triangle's broken now and I can just just <laughs> stomp everything and you know when your musketeers are like shooting down a castle you know you have a problem you know so I mean the but then it'd be fun to like play two canoes and just like get those guys just that could be some fun right there too um and so um i was like you know what there's so many good elements to all of these games and i am sick and tired of giving up all of the good elements from one to get you know some new good elements or something else like i wish that some of these things would just become industry staples and all of the games would just have this awesome far zoom camera and then let's proceed from there like you know pretty much everything lets you select with the left mouse button at that point you know or click and drag and right mouse button to give some orders like can't we have far zoom as a standard like that you know and so um i very consciously was drawing from the things that i liked that i felt like this should be an industry standard from now on you know and and i put all those things into ai war and um Originally, I started out trying to make a game that was using human stand-in AI. Um, Supreme Commander had a, um, I think it was Python, um, that they had their AI and some of their other various game systems coded in that it would load up. Maybe it was Lua, I don't remember. Um, but at any rate, um, a guy named Sorian had... Sure, yeah. Yeah. He had made um, the Sorian's AI mod for um, Supreme Command, uh, Supcom 1 anyway. And then they eventually hired him for Supcom 2, which um, I hear good things about the AI, but I didn't like what they did with the game in general. Uh, that's a whole other story, though. But um, at any rate, he'd made his mod, and then I made mods of his mod. And um, I was really enjoying seeing what he was doing and I was putting it in source control and what, looking at his diffs and then making my own changes and so forth. And um, that got me really frustrated past a certain point where I was like, you know what, this whole, if I could just, I was doing database programming and so forth at that point. Uh, at that point, actually, I was a uh, chief technology officer at a different company. We did um, um software for the affordable housing industry and managing uh, a bunch of data and so forth for that finances and uh, construction and property management and that sort of thing. And I'd been doing that for eight years. I really loved that company and really loved that job. Um, I got out at just the right time because the 2008 um, housing market crash happened. And then, <laughs> uh, so that was like really fortuitous. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, because that affected a lot of our clients in a major, like to the, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Some of our clients had fall apart there, and we were just like, oh my god. So, uh, oh, wait, so let, any, me, let me circle back. So, so Sorian's AI mod for Supreme Commander Two is basically the the seeds for AI War. Not really. I mean, the, but I mean, that's where you started cutting your teeth on making, uh, like like messing with AI. This idea that the player an AI that the player can play against? Um, somewhat. It's where I started okay. messing with it in the context of RTS. I had done um, various other kinds of AI before. Um, I'd actually already coded most of what later became Shattered Haven at that point. So I, I had worked with a lot of various AI systems, okay. and I had done um, some experimental stuff, but that's where I really started getting into a lot of coordinated AI. 
And I noticed that it was very similar to a lot of the things that I was doing in database programming. Mm -hmm. And um, I was doing a lot of like T-SQL, TransactSQL was like my bread and butter at that point. And I actually was looking at it recently. I can like barely write a query now. It's so scary how fast you become out of date with stuff. But but I, but I can do shader language now, so you know, <laughs> you, you trade one thing out. And right. um, but at any rate, yeah, I was doing a bunch of stuff with T-SQL where I was like uh, doing things you weren't really supposed to be able to do with it. Uh, people were using this doesn't mean anything to anybody. I don't know why I'm saying it, but you could do a bunch of stuff with like cursors. And it was really slow, and you know, I was doing things with like update loops and using. You know, I was really pouring through Microsoft's documents on that and just squeezing the life out of um, uh, the SQL Server and what we could do on ridiculously, you know, low hardware. And then that, so, that obviously fed into AI War, right? Like all that work you were doing there went into AI War. Yes. And I, yeah. And on the C sharp side too, like, you know, I was squeezing the life out of, um, uh, ISS, the, um, the, you know, Chris, you're actually completely over my head. Like, I don't know what any of this sorry. is. So, yeah, so just to yeah, get away no. from programming, because I, you are such a programming wonk. And I mean that as a compliment. I mean, it, you, you drift so readily into that sort of thing. Uh, sorry. Yeah. It, but, yeah. but here's the thing. Like, like AI war has a lot of sexiness to it. And I, I think a lot of times hearing you talk about it, people might not really realize that because not just say <laughs> that you don't appreciate it, but you get so down in the weeds. So let's get out of the yeah, weeds yeah, yeah, yeah. and let's talk about what happened in AI War that you're changing in AI War 2 because you've got a Kickstarter going. Uh, and I, I think there are at least three specific things that you want people to know. This is different from AI War 1. So AI War 1 Super revolutionary in certain important ways. I feel like the the RTS genre kind of died, and it went in two directions. It went to tower defense, and it went to MOBAs. The people who would normally yeah. be playing RTSs play those things. One direction it should have gone, and I, I don't understand why more people didn't go here, was this idea of what you're doing with AI war. But it, it had some accessibility issues. Um, right. There's a lot to chew on there, and you it's know it's also bloody hard to replicate. I knew that I was safe with that one because nobody else was going to do that ah. <laughs> in the sort of time frame that we. Had. I did it in seven months, the original one for version 1.0, and then we spent another five years, you know, continuing to make it. But uh, nobody else was going to catch up to us on that because I had developed a lot of those ideas and things while I was doing other games uh -huh. and while you know as a hobby and while I was at my other job so th th that is a big leap to take I, not to insult anything with MOBAs or tower defense but it's just vastly simpler to create something like that um, y most of the games that I create I've really enjoyed working on compared to AI war because they're vastly simpler because it's like you know, with AI war, just the scale alone, sure. every time every time I ask you to carry a brick to the garage or whatever, it's like, no, actually carry 100 bricks, you know. <laughs> and so you have to somehow, you know, make the bionic arms that can carry 100 bricks, basically. And it's a weird analogy, but it's what came to me. <laughs> well, so, so you've got uh, you've got this huge 160 page design document for AI war available for people to pour over. Um like this is this is a game. It's not done, but you obviously know in your head what this game is going to be and what you want to do with it, what direction you're going with it. Uh, 
you've got uh, you, you, you're estimating it's going to take about a year to do. Uh, one of the things you're really wanting to deal with, uh, and I'll just lay them out here because I want you to talk about specifically. Uh, yeah. The accessibility, uh, as far as the learning curve, uh, the UI, and finally, uh, you're doing 3D graphics. Like I feel like you are conceding that, uh, yeah, a little eye candy uh, <laughs> is something that people really want. Uh, so talk about accessibility, how you're changing the, the interface, uh, and why you're doing 3D graphics. All right, I'll talk about 3D graphics first because okay. that's the easiest one and quickest. And real quick, um, uh, 3D graphics but not a Z-axis, am I correct? It's still a 2D. Yeah. Okay, good. I mean, it, it's, it's basically Age of Empires 3, right. you know what I mean, where it's 3D and you can tilt the camera some if you want to and you can do that sort of thing. But it's, you know, that's that's fluff. You don't have to. Well, 3D uh, for the sake of being able to admire it. That's the way I like to think of it. Um, and actually, that's not completely true, believe it yeah. or not. But but um, well, because of how, how it's easier on hardware, also. Like, is that is that your main part? Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, right. Um, it, it there there are benefits all around. So um, real quick, Chris, the, when you're the right answer, it, like it, it, nobody, and I don't mean nobody. Uh, the fact that it's easy on hardware, like that's not the important thing for people who are gamers the fact that it looks different that it looks better like like ai war is great and it's very 2d and you can do things with the yeah. 2d artwork but when you're showing off in your video those little fighter squadrons flying around and mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's it's fluff and it's easier on the hardware if that you're using polygons but that's that's sexy you know that's sizzle. yeah you know you should sell that it looks great uh and especially yeah. for someone who looks at screenshots of uh, ai war and might right. think what, what is that you know screenshots yeah. with the little fighters going everywhere and certainly video of that so regardless of the fact that it's easier to do it looks better and different and it has more of a hook i, I think right um, right and, and it's I, the reason i bring up the it's easier to do in some ways mm -hmm. is that um one of the things i espoused uh and it was correct at the time but is no longer correct because of how hardware has evolved and the unity platform has evolved was that you couldn't do ai war except in 2d that sort of scale was not possible in 3D. Mm -hmm. And I stand by that seven years ago. <laughs> now that is not the case, and there's actually benefits to doing it here. One of the big things that a lot of people that liked the first game immediately asked me is, one, can I run this? And two, um, are you like majorly scaling back like the general scale of this like is this getting smaller uh because they figure like that has to happen with the move to 3d like uh a i can't run it and b it's smaller that's what happened with supreme commander 2 i hate that i hate it i hate it i hate it you know my dad and my uncle like supreme commander 2 i never i just was like i'm done with that one you know <laughs> and so you know that is not what i'm going to do and so that's why i bring that up is mm -hmm. is is in relation to those specific things mm -hmm. now um you know, the other thing that a lot of people would complain about is, oh, well, they had like the high definition displays and so forth. And then, you know, the, the UI would be tiny and they couldn't see the ships and stuff. And it's like, well, yeah, down your screen resolution, blah, 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 blah. You know, there was always a fight about that. And so, you know, none of that stuff's an issue anymore. Hooray. So, you know, the 3D looks a lot better. Um, I didn't know how to do 3D programming until more recently. I had done... 3D design as a hobby since 1998. It was something I've loved to do as an artist mm -hmm. since then. So I have a, a long history of doing that sort of work, but only in a raster 
it doesn't matter uh in in a different sort of format um that's not compatible with games until recently uh i also uh had a lot of experience doing like i designed maps for counter-strike and for quake 2 and duke nukem 3d and that sort of thing so i had experience doing level design in that sort of area and but I never programmed in it, and the math seemed hard, and the shader stuff was scary, and blah, 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 blah. I learned how to do that in the last year or so, and I was like, oh, my God, this is way easier than, and, you know. And so now I'm like, you know, all the world's, a, you know, and they all know that I've got this new hammer. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is the best thing, right, and everyone right. will work in 2D again. Right. You know, it's so much easier to make stuff look good because all you have to do is just light it well. And, oh, my God, this is the best thing ever. Uh, there, and there's so, a video on your Kickstarter campaign that, that sort of shows, shows examples of, of gameplay. Uh, was that fun to make? Oh, yeah. Are yeah. you kidding me? I love it. I, mean, I and it. I got the sense from that. Like it, it must have been to hear you talk now. It must have been awesome to sort of put together. Here's what I want a game to look like. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I was having so much fun making the Raptor game that flopped, which we won't go into that whole thing. <laughs> but I mean, I was just eating that up, and I was just loving just all the things I was getting to do there. And I was like, I'm not giving that up to right. to work on AI War. Like, I want to bring that to AI War in its own special way. So at any rate, it looks better, performs better on new hardware, mm-hmm. new-ish hardware, stuff that's remotely current. And um, it's, it's yeah, it's way sexier. So um, why isn't, uh, what, what are the accessibility issues with AI war and how are they being changed in AI war too? Right. So with AI war, there are a lot of things Okay, it grew up organically, and it shows, because there's basically a lot of stuff that some of it was mildly duplicative. You know, we had some mechanics that kind of, you know, were added in different years or whatever, and they they overlapped a little bit too much. And, you know, there's just a lot of information being thrown at you. A lot of it does come down to the interface showing you too much at one time, and in some cases, not not the right things, like from a... Um, business programmer standpoint, it you know it's kind of like collecting all the data, but then not making the executive reports because the executives are always like, just just give me the little report, <laughs> you know. And you know, I was always frustrated with those executives, but now like those executives are the players, and I'm like, oh yeah, right, I totally get that, and this is so familiar, <laughs> you know. And so because I gotta say, the, it, it's part of it because it's player. Like I love all the information I get in like the AI war tutorial like it, there's a bunch thrown at you and I'm a guy who loves reading rules and manuals and what's accessible to other people isn't necessarily what I can consider what's inaccessible to other people isn't really an issue for, for me and I presume for you uh, right so this idea I like this idea of, of making it for executives like doing a shorter report uh, for for people with different uh, thresholds for accessibility right yeah. and we we found that with um I first was kind of experimenting with that in the last federation in a lot of ways, because with that one, um, you can just kind of go in and mess around and it's fun and weird things happen and civilizations bloom and die and you see what you can affect and maybe you win, maybe you don't. I was kind of inspired by, um, FTL with that because I was like, you know, I don't even have to completely understand FTL. Like I just kind of, it gave me this super short tutorial and then I'm like off to the races. And then there's a like crazy amount of depth to FTL if you want to keep going. Um, but it's just a matter of how long you want to 
um, pull on that thread. And my conclusion overall of people's tolerance for um, complexity is that ultimately there isn't a cap on how complex anybody is willing to have something. I mean, even like the Madden football games or whatever, a lot of them get bloody complicated if you are into the really deep stats and all that sort of stuff. And some people that you would not think of as, you know, mm, <laughs> complexity oriented, let's sure, say, sure. Um, are very much more, they will pick that up easier than you or I will. And so um, it's a matter of, Either A, prior knowledge, or B, uh, how much, you know, how rapidly the information is fed. And so that's one of the things I really like about chess is that, you know, you can learn the rules so fast and then just go. And of course, you're falling for fool's mate and doing all these really stupid things. It doesn't really matter. You're still having fun. You're still playing. You're still learning. You're still moving forward. Um, and then, you know, of course, there's just no end to the depth that you can get in there. And I'm not saying AI War 2 does that. That's it's a much simpler rule set. It's not possible to do. Uh, but um, the number of assumptions of what it thinks that you need to know or what you just have to know in general – um, it cuts down on, there's a lot of kind of secret handshakes and things like, you know, you need to know to go get the warp gate. Uh, if you're going to go colonize a new planet, you need to know, uh, where to go to build like building type things. You need to know to build a colony ship. You need to know to send the colony ship to the other planet, how to do that. Once the colony ship is there, you need to know to click it, click the build thing, where to position your new, uh, command station. You need to know to guard it for how long blah, 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 time it between waves, all this stuff you need to do to colonize your first stupid planet. And it's like none of that's needed. And a lot of that is interface problems because you really – all you should have to do is say, all right, I want to go over there. I want to fight. You know, it's the, dif- it's the distance between making a decision and seeing the results of that decision. You should be able to go over there needing to be – you know, needing to learn how to do that is – fairly straightforward enough we learned that you know we could put underneath the name at the wormhole like you know hold control and click for them to go in mm-hmm. and the only reason you have to do that is just right clicking is because otherwise you can't fight near wormholes because every time you try and right click an enemy right. you accidentally <laughs> send your guys to the wormhole and we actually had that happening for quite a while at right at early early ai war and it was really frustrating because you guys would be coming in and out of your planet and you're like stay here no but kill that guy you know and so at any rate you go over to the other planet and then as long as like your new mothership unit, which is a really general purpose unit, is over there, then it's like click the build button, which is always on the left side, and then click colony ship, and then, you know, build it wherever you want. And if you build it a stupid place, you'll quickly learn that was a stupid place. You know, the game will organically teach you that. And uh, at that point, then you go back and do something else. Now... It, uh, it occurs to me that when you when you when we're talking about accessibility and and interface, they're actually not different things. They're, they're, yes. they're pretty much the same thing. Uh, one of the things that that uh, I forget if this is in a design document or on the Kickstarter campaign, uh, you're, you're talking about tool tips. And a lot of games these days, I specifically think of the big strategy games that Paradox makes, certainly Civ Six, which I've been playing lately. They they teach through tool tips. And there's yes. this idea that if you just want to make things happen and click them around and see the results, you can do that. But if you really want those numbers, they're going to pop up t- a lot of information and tooltips that you can go over. Uh, that, that's kind of how they teach you the game, is they just let you play, and then every now and then they'll weigh in with a tooltip for people who want to read them. And everyone else can right. just charge on ahead. 
Uh, and so that's I something would, that you've written like about the, is tooltips. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. And well, and I always really like the Civilopedia, like in Civ Four, right? Um, because, but and I and with AI War, the original, I set out to create that sort of thing with our wiki because I could do like proper rich text formatting and stuff, and I didn't have that capability in raw DirectX, which is what I was coding in at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, it's before we moved to Unity later on. And um, now I can do all sorts of rich text, so we can build that into the game. But, um, so, like, AI War 2 can have, like, a AI Waropedia. Right. right. But even so, I don't really like the Civilopedia anymore because I still have to go and search and find the thing, and it usually just doesn't – it doesn't really fit the bill for me. What I like now is tooltips for tooltips, and that sounds insane. But what it is, you know, you can't hover it over a tooltip to get information about it usually Mm -hmm. because as soon as you move it, it disappears, right? Right, You move your mouse, it disappears. But the ideal tooltip works through like icons and brevity so that you can quickly at a glance see what's going on. And that's always the war that I've had of how how much do we, you know, tell and, you know, versus, you know, what is, what is the ideal amount that goes in the tooltip? And we've always erred on putting too much in and that is, bad for usability, um, but good for long-term play. So with the new approach, um, you can hover anywhere for, you know, tooltip, but then there's a thing saying like, you know, hold down the space bar and it will lock whatever the tooltip is on screen. That stays. Right. At that point, then you can move your mouse over whatever icons you want, whatever other things you want, and it will uh, then give you much more detailed information about it. And um, potentially either let you click it or else just show it directly, like little strategy advice right there about like, hey, science, you should be doing blah, blah, blah. Hey, you know, metal, you do blah, blah, blah. Um, There's a bunch of other like secret handshake type things that are more gameplay uh, oriented. And those are things like the first thing you need to do on every planet is build uh, a metal harvester on every metal point. Well, why make the player even do that? You always do it, you know? And so it's like, you know what? We're taking that off, you know? So now we have derelicts, and the command station automatically does it. Um, it you know, repair is automatic across there. But instead of being this, um, instead of being this thing where you have to, like, order engineers around, and, like, the micro can get kind of crazy. And so we have instead these screens that are a lot like, um, SimCity 4 and some of the other ones like that, uh, I really like uh, City Skylines, where they have these kind of budget screens that you can easily and in one space say, this is how I want things allocated, go. Right. And, um, you know, these are some special policies I have, you know, go. And so we're making it so that that sort of thing replaces like units that do like, a, you know, 20 units you need to learn that do a variety of things. Right. Let's just have one sub screen. You just click, 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 and we'll have presets, and the player can make their own presets and you know load at a whim, and then you know, make little tweaks for specific planets. And everything is just you know right there. Like information that should be together is grouped together. Like things that are an opportunity cost for each other. Like which thing am I spending more on? Like. Uh, powering my turrets on this particular planet or powering repairs, you know, that should be on one screen. Mm-hmm. And so that reduces the amount of like discoverability problems and it reduces the need for tutorializing of like, 
you know, these things are located in these places and these are related even though they're not close. And these are grouped together for this reason because they're utility, but really you also need the utility and the economy stuff kind of, to, you know, the list goes on. One We've my, learned a lot. <laughs> one of my favorite strategy games of all time, and I, I'm constantly surprised this isn't stolen more, uh, is Frog City's imperialism games. And their whole mm, idea yeah. is that everything comes back to your home city, and that, that city is your main screen. You're still out on a map, but it's all about what things you're bringing back to that city where you process them. And it, it gets into the, the model of colonialism really appropriately, but just this idea of focusing all that stuff in one place to reduce micromanagement. They, they just had a beautiful idea there. Uh, so we've only got a little bit more time left. So I want to ask you specifically about two things that you're doing in AI War 2 that aren't in the first AI War. Uh, what is the science system? So the science system is a way – this is actually another usability thing to some ex – <clears throat> excuse me, to some extent um, – we did six expansion packs for the first AI war. And so the number of distinct units in that game, I, I honestly don't know. It's something, it's north of 600. I mean, it might be like 800. <laughs> um, th that's counting like the unit upgrades to like distinct, distinct might be only like 300 some odd. I, I really don't even know though. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a lot. And that's another point of, learning issues of trying to like what is this icon that i've never seen before that is showing up now you know and if you get a unit that you really like like i like the musketeers in age, age of empires 3 like you might not see that ever again like there's like you know um 40 some different distinct uh units that you might be having randomly rolled for you and you might not see like the equivalent of the musketeers again like for 30 hours or ever, you know? And so, um, what I said was like, you know, this is too much, you know, we need to cut this down because one of the things it was actually a player that gave me the idea. And I wish I remembered too. They were like, you know, there's just too many units that are, you know, so similar to one another, but with slight differences. And I'd done that on purpose in the original game. Cause it was like, you know, different flavors for different, you know, unless you kind of customize, like, you know, maybe you want to be bomber heavy, but in this other way, like they legitimately, allowed for different play styles. And I really, really like that. What the science system does is say, okay, we're not going to make separate units out of that though. Let's make it so that, um, we have a fewer number of base units. I think we cut it down to, well, just for the regular military units, it's like 40 some odd, I think. And then, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's probably another hundred units that are, you know, so there's still a lot of unit types, but not nearly so many as before. Um, and at any rate, the science upgrades let you say, okay, well, maybe I want a higher unit cap on my bombers. Maybe I want bombers that are also cloaked. Maybe I want, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so that way you can kind of build it, build your own unit. And this goes against one of my uh, core design tenets of the first game, which is that you would always be able to know exactly what something does by looking at it on the battlefield. Right. But does but does it? Because you know what you've upgraded. And since it's PV, uh, PVE, if you've got allies, you either know what they've upgraded or you don't care. It doesn't matter. It's not really relevant to you. They're commanding those troops. With the AI units, they don't do these invisible upgrades. Um, and that's important. Um, they have some kind of built-in versions of themselves, and um, they don't upgrade in that way. There's still plenty of variance there because they have a lot of unique units that you don't have, and, and vice versa. But um, and so, 
the invisible upgrades are things that you will easily remember because you did it or else you will uh, be able to easily look and see, oh, yeah, this is, you know, this is what I've applied to this type of unit. And it's actually easier to understand because you're not having to remember so many different kinds of icons because if there's, you know, uh, 200 icons for you to remember, you know, that's still not being able to look at the board and immediately understand what's going on. You're like, what's that icon again? <laughs> you, know? you know what else that does, Chris, is I, I think when, when you ask someone to make a decision about a unit, uh, it, it creates in the player a sense of emotional attachment. Like, I decided something about what this is. You know, yes. this is some input I had on how this works and what it does. And at a base level, there's something like when you're playing StarCraft, if you upgrade the armor of your melee units, you know, your melee units become more meaningful rather than your flying units, your ranged units, because you chose, I'm going to make their armor more powerful. Uh, and that's at a base level, but on a more particular level, like if a unit has like a skill tree, or has different choices you can make about what weapon it's going to use. Like, I had some input there. It's not just what the developer gave me to play with. It's what I created. Uh, That's and, a really good point. And, that, and that we never had that emotional attachment with units. It was always with terrain in the first AI war. Uh, how, how is that with terrain? Like, as well, far as, like, building? create. Uh, like, um, I, I mean, uh, like, strategic landscape in terms of... Uh, the the places take on great significance. Right, right. Um, you know, I can still remember the random randomly generated names of certain. Like there was one my wife and I were playing in 2009 before the game came out. It's this planet called Quasnumas. It was right next to our home world. It was this intense battleground forever, and this was like a 14 hour game. And that was just like this epic place. Yeah. And nobody will ever know Quasnumas except my wife and I. And it had a lot of meaning attached to it based on our decisions and what the AI did. And, um, you know, that sort of emergent thing would happen with planets and groups of planets and parts of planets. You know, sometimes it was like that wormhole on this planet and, you know, astro trains are coming through and it's like, Oh my God, that wormhole, that was just somewhere else. Yep. yep. You know? Now, so. uh, similarly, as far as creating emotional attachment, you're also, uh, well, I don't know if this is part of the same thing, but you, you have, uh, I guess, playable races. Like you're, uh, the, the races that have appeared in the expansion, you're letting the players uh, use – it's almost like different factions, I guess, right? Like when I yes. when I sit down to play StarCraft, am I the Zergs, the Protoss, or the Terrans? Like you're doing something similar to that here with the players' uh, playable races. Yes, except even more so. And um, one of the things we had in the original AI War was most of these units that – the races are there. And when you, I'm taking the original AI War plus six expansions. Right. We had um, all of those units were just all in this big mix. So you, as the humans, could get the Zenith units, the Spire units, the uh, Ninesville units, all that sort of thing. And that was great to a point, but it just was kind of a big mess. And as much as I tried to keep things unique, they kind of trended towards the middle because um, if you're playing as human there needed to be kind of a rough baseline where it's not like we always pick this unit you know what i mean and so whatever the rough baseline was it needed to all be within a standard deviation of that now with this expansion or with the sequel rather what we're able to do is we said okay forget that um let's make it uh three different races we're cut out the nines because those guys are too weird uh <laughs> we'll do that some other time um uh, uh three letters for you chris dlc yeah exactly <laughs> exactly or stretch goal if we somehow magically 
get to that level, which, yeah. But uh, at any rate, so with the uh, um, with these three main races, with humans, we say, okay, this is going to be kind of the traditional experience, more or less. I mean, you know, with new twists and all that sort of thing, but this is AI War as you knew it. Uh, with the Zenith, well, actually, I'll skip those for a second. With the Spire, um, those guys are very much not AI wars, you know, and we took all the Spire units from before and we moved them there. And these guys have an entirely different level of power, much like ridiculously more powerful than the humans. And so everything is within a standard deviation of that, which would be ridiculously overpowered for the humans. Now, uh, that comes with a lot of ramifications because instead of it being a David and Goliath simulator, it's kind of more like Godzilla's duking it out. And, um, <laughs> That was in the original AI War. In one of the expansions, I think the fourth or fifth expansion, we had a a campaign that was kind of a built-in campaign in part of the main game where uh, the Fallen Spire campaign, uh, this object would show up in in the campaign. You had to do a bunch of stuff while you were playing the main game. And then eventually, if you completed that campaign while playing the main game, you would get the Spire Imperial fleet would show up, and they were these Goliaths. And you would then just get to this duking and outmatch with the AI, and it was intense. Uh, but this would only happen after playing the regular game for quite some time in order to get the Imperial fleet. Here it's like, okay, we're going to give you the Imperial fleet from the start. You're going to start, it's going to be intense. The AI is going to be hitting hard at you because the whole premise is they don't really notice you. Well, they notice the Imperial fleet, Mm -hmm. you know, and um, it's a very different game. It's very differently balanced when you're playing as them. And in multiplayer, uh, fine, you can do what you want. We're not here to tell people what to do. You can mix and match. One player is the human, one player is the spire. I don't really know how that's going to go for the human player. (laughs) That would be an interesting thing because... I, I don't know. We'll see what happens. But, I mean, if people want to do it, they can. Um, the uh, Zenith are kind of the middle ground between those two, honestly. Uh, they have their own weirdness to them as well uh, with using, like, demigolems and some other things that are – that they have their own flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's very much – you know, like with StarCraft, you have these – three different but equal races and here these are never ever ever pitted against one another they're not equal at all um and they're not supposed to be and the ai reacts very differently to those different levels of threat and you can see that in the original game and for instance you could even use cheat codes in the original game to create these massive armies of your own and then you know play against the ai with with that and um, it would be, or you could, there were actually some non cheap ways of doing it and it would just be a completely different game mm-hmm. versus somebody who's like taking as few planets as possible and playing really, you know, out of the jungle style, basically. Now, so you, you've, uh, you've estimated that this would be delivered, uh, about a year from now that you'd be working on it a year. Uh, folks can kickstart this for $20 to get a copy of the game, but for $25 they're, uh, they'll have access to, to early access. Uh, what sort of uh, – explain how that would work if I buy into this for early access. Like are you planning on uh, polishing up rele- playable versions? Are you really wanting people to beta test? What sort of things can people expect uh, if they're in for early access over the course of the next year? Okay, so we actually have um, three different tiers of mm-hmm. this. So uh, one is actually um, 
alpha access, which is pre-early alpha, and that'll be hitting in January. So at that point, it's going to be rough as heck. It's going to be uh, like right at the start, you know, and not all the, you know, a ton of features are not going to be there. And, you know, we're going to be, um, Keith is going to be working on coding a bunch of the simulation stuff. I'm going to be in the interface. We're still going to be doing art. And, you know, it's going to be sawdust everywhere. It's going to be great. Um, that really appeals to certain players, and they want to be. I mean, we had players specifically asking that uh, us for that because they like to be able to get in their feedback, like from you know day zero, basically. Right. right. And so that's going to be that process from January through uh, May of next year. Mm-hmm. Now we'll be getting things ready for that process up, you know, prior to January, basically. Um, then once we hit May, that's when it will go to early access. And, um, at that point, um, the game will have a, basically a vertical slice and pretty fat vertical slice, really. Um, it will not be feature complete, Mm -hmm. uh, but it will be, well along towards feature complete and um we have we have really really detailed excel sheets of all that stuff but um uh some of the more extraneous stuff won't be there um but all of the really cool core stuff is is there at that point and then it's just uh we said until september or sorry october um because that gives us some buffer time Honestly, to not come in so hot for once where um, there are some months of people just kind of playing it and giving us feedback and we're uh, dealing with the, the support feedback. Um, by the time we hit September, um, our goal is that we're pretty much done and just letting it sit and making little tweaks for that last month. Right. Um, we'll see if that happens, but that's the goal. And we've got this... We've got this uh, conservatively budgeted, you know, in terms of uh, making sure that we have enough extra time that hopefully we impress people by being early and, you know, or at least being on time rather than having it drag out. And this is not exploratory work for us, which is really nice. Some of our recent past projects like Stars Beyond Reach or even Raptor were hugely exploratory. Mm -hmm. And that is incredibly high risk because uh, you don't know exactly what you're building. I mean, you know, we know what we're going to try and build and you build a prototype of it and you see if it's fun. And if it's not fun, then you iterate and you don't know how many times you're going to have to do that. And, uh, you know, the feel you're going for and blah, 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 but you don't know if you can get there for sure. You don't know how long it's going to take to get there, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Here we know what this is and, uh, we are, uh, refining something that a lot of people knew what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, that's vastly lower risk in terms of we've we've never had an expansion pack that was late, you know. Okay. <laughs> that just that, that hasn't happened. It sounds um, like territory you're very comfortable on, as yeah. far as your footing. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. Like this was this was kind of like our fail-safe place to go. And right. AI War the first is still like a third of our income even now, and so I've always been really wary of coming back here for fear of cannibalizing it. But you know, it it's time, basically. Uh, finally, before I let you go, I, this is AI War 2. You and I have talked a lot in the past about the names of games and how difficult <laughs> that can be and challenging. Uh, why is it not AI Wars 2 colon and then something, something, something? And surely you gave that thought, didn't you? Or was it always oh, just AI Wars 2? 
it, yeah, it, it was AI War Two. Um, oh, and it's War Two. I keep, ashes. I keep confusing like singular and plural. Like someone else has the plural. Your AI War. Someone else right. does have the plural. I keep yeah. forgetting that. So uh, I'm sorry. Rise from the ashes. That was something you. Yeah, that was uh-huh. that was like the first concept, and then players on the forums and stuff were like, "Please no." Why? And, Why not rise from the ashes? I like that. What's wrong with that? Um, it sounds like an expansion pack. Um, oh yeah, fair. You know, fair enough. Okay. And it also um, one of the things that's really important for me with uh, uh, branding is that when you've got a long name, it's really really hard for people to see that in little steam capsules. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I'm serious. No, I understand. That's your advertising. I mean, that's it's, where, yeah. it's awful that that has to be a consideration. But AI War too, like that's easy to like put in a tiny capsule. It'll fit horizontally so well, and you know, so that's easy. You know, and then and then we can go with the colons for when we start getting into expansions. I you know I hope that people you know will be wanting that sort of thing again, and um, you know, then we can go from there. But uh, but yeah, I just felt too expansiony. Right. Right. Uh, also, one thing that people do, and I'm so glad you've never done, uh, they'll put their names in Steam in all caps. Like that, I yeah, feel like oh that's God. cheating. I feel, especially if it's not an acronym. Like you're cheating. Like like Massive Chalice. I love that game, but Double Fine was like, yeah, we're gonna write the name in all caps, and it's like shouting at me when I look at my list of games. Plus, AI War in all caps uh, would look weirdly like like Al War. Like I think you could <laughs> sort of screw up how that looks. But uh, so yeah, we're uh, using drop caps, but still, right? Yeah, not on the not on the. Not on the actual Steam right, listings, right. but yeah, we actually kind of cheat a little bit with the colors that we use. Them, we use a lot of uh, red, white, and black because those are the things that pop the most. So, I mean, I probably shouldn't say that, but um, you know, that that sort of thing will grab your eyeballs. And so, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, Chris, I don't think <laughs> anyone would begrudge you trying to grab their eyeballs. That, that's fair enough. <laughs> No, I mean, I probably shouldn't say that because other people would do it. Suddenly everything's red, white, and black. Oh, right, right, because then you'll, you'll just fade in with the background once everyone else starts doing it. I see what you're saying. Right, exactly, right, right, yeah. Right. So it's like you don't, you don't try not to say those things. Right. <laughs> well, your uh, hand. Chris, you're, you're currently, you've got a Kickstarter running. I encourage folks to check it out, AI War 2. Uh, just if you're in for $20, it, it supports the developer. Uh, and a year from now, if AI War 1 is any indication, you're going to have something really cool. So uh, check that out. Chris, thank you so much for talking to me today. I wish you best of luck with the campaign. Um, also, I noticed AI War, uh, it was like 99 cents. There's like a special going on. Yeah, 24 hours only. We're doing that too because we got on the announcements there. AI War 2 Kickstarter. We have 300,000 customers for the first game. Can't reach them. So we, if you know other AI War players, if you're listening, um, give them a heads up about this because – uh, news and everything is saturated. I mean, I had somebody just today telling me you should go on the Three Moves Ahead podcast because uh, you know they really have a great audience. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I was just on last week, you know. And you know that's how saturated the news is yeah. now. And so it's just like, uh, don't assume people. If, if, whatever it is, if it's AI war, if it's something else, if it's something that you think needs to exist and it's trying to exist but struggling and you think somebody else knows don't assume (laughs) chris uh good luck thanks for hanging out uh today uh listeners i will see you guys next week and in the meantime check out the ai war 2 kickstarter thanks so much for having me